Hello and welcome back to the Frame Lab podcast. Hey, George. Hey, Gil. Well, it's been a really exciting week. Uh, Kamala Harris announced her candidacy for president. And George, you've been saying for quite some time that the heart of the Democratic Party can be found in the phrase government of the people, by the people, and for the people, which comes from a speech by Abraham Lincoln. And uh, anyone who listens to Frame Lab or who reads your stuff online is familiar with your insistence that this phrase, more than any other, encompasses the, the meaning of progressive ideas and thought. And when uh, Senator Harris announced her candidacy, she did it with a slogan uh, for her campaign that is quite a familiar phrase. What is that? For the people. And what she said was, I am for the people. Uh, as if other candidates were not. <laughs> and, um, of course, uh, the Democratic Party has, in general, adopted the phrase for the people as well. So every Democrat is, um, uh, you know, given the slogan for the people. So there's nothing special about Kamala in that way, but she presents herself as such. Uh, and um, then there's a question, you know, uh, what does that mean for her? And uh what do people make of it? And what does she say? Well, it would be kind of great if every presidential candidate running as a Democrat uh, ran on the slogan of for the people, then there could be a debate between all the candidates in the frame of what does it mean to be for the people? What does it mean to be for the people? I know we've talked about that before, but for those who maybe you're just tuning in or haven't listened in a while, what does it mean to be for the people? Well, there's the idea that um, government the role of government, especially if you're running for a public office, uh, should um, uh, not be for the corporations as opposed to the people. That is, when you say for the people, you're drawing a contrast between people and corporations and people who are ordinary people. As the term people there is talking about ordinary folks uh, as opposed to wealthy folks in particular. And what they're saying is, you know, I'm for the ordinary folks, which is most folks. And, um, you know, and therefore I'm not for just the wealthy and I'm not just for the corporations and so on. So it's a contrast. And uh, it's, you know, and, and instead of getting up there and says, saying uh, I'm against corporations, which she's not saying and probably is not, um, you know, you're, you're implicitly saying you're for the people as opposed to being for corporations. And so you watched the speech, and um, how do you think she did at articulating those values and those vision, that vision as a, as a Democrat? Well, it sounded to me like she had made a list, uh, a list of all of the progressive positions she could think of. And then she went down the list of the things she was for. So Medicare for all, debt-free college, universal kindergarten all of those things, uh, just one after another after another, um, things having to do with uh, voting rights and, and so on. I mean, just uh, make a list of progressive uh, 
things which, uh, you know, they're real, they're important, and so on. And she went down the list. And she says, what it means to be for the people is to be a progressive in the sense of this list. Now, uh, to be honest, I could not possibly argue against anything in that list. Being a progressive. You know, I mean, yes, uh, and it's, she got a pretty good list. So, um, given that uh, that's what she did, she's coming out and saying, I am, you know, uh, right in the heart of uh, progressivism. And um, and then she also made a pitch being a woman. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, talking about her mother and her mother's values and being a tough woman, being a prosecutor not be a namby-pamby woman or a woman who's going to give in to men and so on, but someone who could stand up against men because that's what she would have to do in a presidential bid uh, or in any run for office. And that's what she's done in the courtroom, right? I think I've seen some progressives have criticized her for being a prosecutor, saying that you know, you're someone who's locked up people and who's put people of color in jail. You're on the wrong side of criminal justice reform, etc., but I do think that, um, in a way, if, if she were to be a candidate in a general election against a Republican, it would be really hard for them to pin on her uh, the softness that the uh, right wing usually tries to pin on a Democrat, because she is someone who's been a prosecutor, who's been um, in in combat in in the courtroom with men against criminals. You know, she's framed it as being a progressive prosecutor, somebody who protects. Victims, but I guess a question I have for you is in terms of the metaphor between a nurturant parent or a or a, a mother and a strict parent or the strict father, doesn't the prosecutorial career give Kamala Harris in a general election the chance to try to appeal to biconceptuals with those tougher elements of her history? Well, not just of her history, but of her demeanor. Uh, if you see her in Senate hearings, she is a tough prosecutor. Uh, she is talking tough on every question. Uh, you know, she's, it's as if she's never not a prosecutor. Uh, that's her public image when she's, you know, uh, test, you know, in, before Congress, um, you know, uh, talking up to witnesses. She's a prosecutor there and she's tough. So the whole idea and, and saying her mother was tough and her mother taught her to be tough and so on. And she had to be tough being a woman to get to where she's gotten. So the idea of being tough is built into that. And, um, and, and it's important to see that being a nurturant parent does not mean being lenient or letting a child do whatever they want. Being a nurturant parent means raising a child to um, do what is good for the child. And that sometimes means uh, saying, hey, you don't do this. You don't run into the street. You don't put your hands on the stove. You know, uh, you, uh, be to, you, know, you have to, to tell children uh, to be safe, what to do, and what, it, and what is right to do, and how to, to treat To go to a, school. Truancy was one of the big issues that some people have fired on her for. Yeah. I mean, going to school, being nice to other kids, not hitting other kids. I mean, all sorts of things like that. That's nurturance. That is not um, a bad thing. So one question is, is um, you know, can she, for liberals, say, hey, as a prosecutor, um, I'm actually being kind to people. 
Uh, and, you know, it's, an, it's a tough sell. <laughs> Being tough, it's a tough sell. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time, Robert Mueller is a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And everybody seems to, uh, I'm sorry, Robert Mueller is a prosecutor. And everybody seems to really like that prosecutor because he is potentially going after a president who may be at the heart of a vast criminal conspiracy. Roger Stone mm-hmm. just got a wake-up call from the FBI from unpaid, furloughed FBI agents this week. So uh, not all prosecutors are bad if you're a progressive. Exactly. Uh, Mueller is a progressive hero. We're going after the bad guys. And he's a Republican. And he's a Republican. So maybe there's uh, some sensibility there and some chance for Harris to um, use her prosecutorial background to her advantage. Um, And for full disclosure for all of our listeners, um, I used to work for Kamala Harris. And during that time, George, we and you and I actually worked together on one of the first things we ever worked on. I called you for some advice on how to frame the argument in terms of uh, in favor of marriage equality. And we worked on a little thing together. And the result of that was a little segment on on MSNBC, I believe, that Think Progress called the most powerful argument in favor of marriage equality you'll see in under one minute. So I think that was the first time we worked together, uh, you know, that we were so quickly realized that that was a, a more powerful argument than usual. So we do have a little bit of history there with Kamala Harris. Quick question before we switch subjects here. Do you think she can go all the way? No. Why not? Well, there are many reasons why I don't think she can go all the way. Um, it's, um, I don't think she has, she's convinced people that she is both progressive and tough in the way that is needed to go against Trump. Um, You know, there are uh, others, other women who are perhaps tougher than she is. And uh, it's um, a certain senator from Massachusetts, for example. Uh, And um, it's hard for any woman to be in that position. Uh, You know, Trump starts out with the strict father advantage. You know, 37% plus or minus two of the country has strict father morality. He starts right there. He's still at 37%, even, you know, no matter how bad he's doing, he's going to be at 37%. That's that's the magic number there. He's not going to fall much below the 37%. And um, it's important to understand that he has a base that way, as any strict father would. So he's starting out there. Uh, you know, Kamala is not going to, to get anywhere with that base. Kamala. <laughs> Kamala is not going to get anywhere with that base. And, um, you know, not a chance. I mean, you know, with the list of every liberal possible position, she's not going to get anywhere with that Does base. Does she need that base to get there, though? Well, if she's going for the tough base... That's the tough base. But what about the biconceptuals who can see a progressive prosecutor, someone who has been nurturant but has also been willing to put uh, Mm -hmm. really bad people who hurt other people in prison? Yeah. I mean, she she can do well with biconceptuals. I think that's true. Uh, I don't think she's going to get anywhere anywhere near the Trump base. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think she expects to. No. Uh, And uh, so the question is, 
Can she get the biconceptuals? And does she even think in terms of biconceptuals? And I doubt that she does. Well, and I want to just clarify, when you say she and other women are going to have a hard time, you're talking about the ingrained sexism in our society that holds women to a much higher standard and refuses to see them as in, in leadership roles. That's right. That's exactly right. We do see some of that changing, right? And um, on our next segment here, we were going to talk about someone who has sort of become, in a way, the de facto cultural leader um, of the Democratic Party, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who just a year ago was sort of an unknown young woman from the Bronx who took on a longtime congressman from her district, won in a very surprising victory, and has since become a communications sensation in terms of people can't get enough of of her. Mm-hmm. Um, everything she says becomes viral, gets attacked by the right wing. They can't resist going after her on everything she says. And this has made her into maybe the most prominent democratic voice in America. I mean, Nancy Pelosi is the speaker, and there's no denying her power. But when you look out there every day, what you're most likely going to see is somebody responding to or going after or agreeing with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is now referred to as AOC, because her name is kind of many syllables yeah. to say she's got two last names. Um, so I wanted, we've been talking about her behind the scenes here and admiring some of what she's been able to do. Um, and in a way, she's almost sort of a an antidote to Trump because uh, they have some similar characteristics in terms of how their opponents react to them and how the media reacts to them. For instance, everything she says gets attacked. This means that millions and millions and millions of people see it. The right wing, the conservatives, Fox News, they cannot help but go after her every time she says something. And this has generally been backfiring on them. So, George, I know you're familiar with some of her stuff. We've been looking at some of her tweets and seeing some of the stuff she's done. What makes AOC so powerful? Well, there are a number of things to be said. Uh, I wrote a book called Don't Think of an Elephant because when you negate something, negate a frame, you activate the frame and you make it stronger. And so getting attacked is good for her in this way. Just as Trump understands that getting attacked is good for him. So, uh, you know, this is the don't think of an elephant principle, and it's a very important principle in politics, and she um, understands that very well. She welcomes attacks for just that reason. Uh, A good person to contrast her with is Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is uh, probably has the same positions on virtually everything, but what she does is come at it from the point of view of grace with power. As Nancy Pelosi has a certain power and wields it with grace, with you know carefully, uh, you know, uh, and uh, you know, you know, takes positions that are like. You know, Ocasio Cortez's positions, AOC. AOC's positions, <laughs> and um, you know, but does it in a way uh, that doesn't uh, just uh, immediately get people to attack her? Although plenty of people are attacking her, it's not that she's not attacked, but the attacks are different. 
because Nancy does everything with with power and grace. And uh, AOC is not trying to do that. She's not, she's out there being blunt, being straightforward about these about what she believes, no questions asked. And if you uh, look at her language, it's not the language of Nancy Pelosi at all. It's not um, you know uh, measured. At, you know Nancy Pelosi is always measured. You know, this is not a person, AOC is not, you know, a measured person. She's out there saying what she believes starkly, straightforwardly, uh, no apologies, uh, no um, uh, attempting to make it softer or something like that. It's a very authentic, direct flow of communication. Well, authenticity is very important to her. And this is right. The word authentic is right. She is authentic. And that is one of her uh, great um, virtues. That is, she's, you know, um, and also will draw attacks. I mean, she's an authentic progressive. No questions about it. She says, I'm a social democrat. You know, no question about it. One of the, speaking of being a social democrat, um, you know, one of the things that she's done very powerfully um, is she frames first. She ignores the frames of the opposition and puts forth progressive ideas in frames. And as we said, she lets others attack her frame and argue within that frame. One of the recent successes she had was she suggested a 70% marginal tax rate for millionaires and billionaires, people making more than $10 million a year. And conservatives went on the attack. It was like catnip for them. And they attacked her so much that they spread the idea around. And millions and millions and millions of Americans heard this idea that we should tax people seventy percent when they're making ten million on the you know the after they make ten million or more a year, and now a poll shows that two thirds of Americans support that idea, uh, including a pretty large number of Republicans. What's the lesson here for Democrats in the grip of poll-driven consultants who want them to say safe things? The idea is that. Uh, you know, non-safe things that make sense. Non-safe things that, um, you know, it's, that are hard to argue against uh, are important. That is important not to be safe, not to sound safe. And she doesn't sound safe. She doesn't come off as somebody who's trying to sound like she's safe. Now, Nancy Pelosi is sounding like she's safe while she's saying, you know, remarkable things. But um, AOC is not doing that at all. I will say, and maybe it's the AOC effect, that Pelosi has sounded a bit more direct and blunt lately. You know, and we saw that in her showdown with Trump when she walked into that meeting and she dropped the Trump shutdown hashtag on him and he immediately accepted the frame. And recently when the Republicans were saying that People should go take loans or get the grocery store to give you the groceries for on credit. Um, she said these people seem to think that you can just call your daddy for money. You know, and mm -hmm. most people don't have that. And that was some pretty real talk, pretty, pretty brutal lines that really I think connected with people. I think in politics traditionally, there's been this idea that you can't make a gaffe. 
that you have to be carefully controlled. Every word has to be planned out and workshopped through the lens of complete safety. Because if you make one gaffe, everybody goes crazy, attacks you, and you have to apologize. But the way that Trump changed the game was that gaffes became the strategy. Yes. You say an explosive, bombastic thing, and everybody pays attention to it. But instead of apologizing, you roll with it. And it seems to me that there's been a temperature change in terms of the Democratic Party. That's why I said at the beginning of this segment, sort of following the lead of AOC in terms of their communication. Now, Twitter is clogged with Congress people live streaming from their kitchens. Elizabeth Warren, when she announced her presidential bid or exploratory committee, was in her kitchen drinking a beer. Everyone seems to have realized that that AOC uh, embraced you know, I don't think she's the first person to do this, but embraced this as a politician, and it has been really successful. It's what people are looking for, more authentic connection. So I would say that I have seen a bit of a change over the past few weeks, especially since Pelosi became speaker. She's still very uh, dignified and powerful, but she's throwing some elbows, and she always has in a certain way. But I think that now, because of the way, in addition to her words, her actions uh, defeated Trump so soundly in this uh, shutdown mm-hmm. showdown that people are realizing the value of her experience and her skill in politics, Pelosi, I mean. So um, that has been something that has been a change, I think, that we've perceived. It almost seems that Democrats are discovering the art of framing. And in fact, recently on Twitter, just two days ago, AOC said uh, she was debating a question with Brian Stelter of CNN. And she said, well, the way you frame the question really matters. And she spoke a bit directly about framing, which is something we generally don't hear politicians do, at least not framing in the terms that you talk about them. Well, uh, I think that's quite remarkable. And uh, may she do it more. Uh, and uh, it's it's important to talk about framing, obviously, for from my point of view, because it's what drives uh, our our politics. Uh, and getting the framing out there is important. But one of the things that Trump did and that uh, AOC is taking on is the idea that what's beyond the pale becomes the new normal, if repeated. That repetition and saying it loudly and without apology uh, becomes a new normal. And that is, it can be attacked, and as soon as it's attacked, it's definitely a new normal, as in don't think of an elephant, and um, you want it to be attacked. So that idea is out there, and, um, you know, AOC is taking advantage of it. By the way, uh, the poll that two-thirds of Democrats said they would consider um, voting for her for uh, president, Actually, or I believe that's the number there. And then a similar number for support for the marginal tax rate. So already, and here's the funny thing, she is not eligible to run for president because she's only 29 years old. She's yes. 35 to run for president. And so it's amazing that you know political leaders, elected officials spend millions and millions of dollars, maybe billions altogether on consultants to try to get the kind of admiration and following that this very young new congressperson from the Bronx has generated very naturally through communication 
and a values driven framing and i think that's pretty pretty amazing and and maybe it took trump for people to realize the power of that of that kind of communication of putting the understanding of the moral values you're dealing with first well it's not new i mean the kennedys did it uh, you know whether it's jack kennedy robert De- kennedy certainly did it made it very, very clear that moral values were right up front every time he he got up to speak. Um, Teddy Kennedy did it too. I knew Teddy Kennedy very well. And, um, you know, he was always there. (laughs) Teddy Kennedy used to call me um, 9 o'clock from Washington, which was 6 a.m. here, and then made fun of me because I wasn't awake. (laughs) So... Let's return quickly to something that happened. It already seems like old news, but the news moves so quickly these days. The Wall. You wrote an op-ed in the Sacramento Bee called about Trump's wall of hate and the need for Democrats to stop the wall of hate. You said the, the wall is really a metaphor for hate, for nationalism, and for white supremacy. Tell us why the wall was a, a metaphor for hate. Well, first of all, um, it's not literal. I mean, it's not going to stop most of the things it's supposed to stop. Uh, but what it means there uh, as a wall, it means we're against you, we don't like you, and we're going to exclude you. So it has a symbolic meaning of uh, hatred and exclusion. It says, we, we dislike you so much, we're going to put up this wall. I mean, you know, you might dislike somebody, usually you don't, Put up walls, you know. You want it might want to exclude somebody in some way, but you know, to excluding them with this wall is an extreme, a very extreme thing. And it's direct versus systemic causation, and this is very important. Uh, direct causation means you go out and you just stop it somehow. And Trump tries to do that with tariffs and with all sorts of other means. That is, he tries to use direct causation, and the wall is that sort of thing. Systemic causation tries to um, use what's in the system. Traditional democratic politics uses systemic causation. They use regulations here and laws there and some patchwork quilt of regulations and laws and, and, uh, and social norms to accomplish things. Uh, that's systemic. That is working within a system. Uh, Trump likes to get out there and just do it directly. And that's what this wall is about. And the wall says uh, that Latinos are not our friends. They're no, not we need our, a wall to keep them out. We need a wall to keep them out. You know, it's not like America has traditionally been the welcoming country. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not give us your, oh, you're tired, you're poor, etc., as with the Statue of Liberty. Uh, this is the anti-Statue of Liberty. It goes against traditional American values. And it's not seen as anti-American. The Democratic Party has not pointed out that these are anti-American values in talking about the wall. Talking well, about I think the- they started to at the end. I do think sorry. A lot of it at first was based on the literal aspects of right. it. Uh, well, we we have other ways of doing it. We can have a smart wall. We can have drones. We can have yeah. you know calling it border security. But I do feel that at the end there, people started to talk about it as a well, monument to racism. Well, Nancy came out 
directly about it and said, this is immoral in just mm-hmm. that way. It is a symbolic of racism. It just is. That's its job. Its job is to be symbolic of racism. And when people point out, well, you know, it probably isn't going to work, blah, 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 that's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is to stay. Americans don't like Latinos. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a big, long, <coughs> viral tweet about crime rates for immigrants being lower than for Americans. And we all know that, but you're arguing within the frame of criminals, right? Yes. And it's not the right way to – don't don't give that argument the, the heat. Of course, it was a scientist who was doing it because right. scientists love to argue within the frame that is given <laughs> yes. rather than creating a new frame. But the wall was symbolic, but the ass-kicking that Donald Trump just got was not. And I think that's going to cost him. Yeah, I think so. And especially asking for $5.7 billion for it. And also <clears throat> uh, pinning his very vanity on the wall. Because it's easy to to say no to his vanity. Yeah, and one thing that was stunning to me was looking out there and seeing that a lot of uh, Trump supporters seem to suddenly realize the role government plays in their own lives. Mm-hmm. There were people who were apoplectic about the fact that they weren't going to be able to get uh, federal background checks for new jobs they had, or they weren't going to get their um, their SNAP food benefits. You know, and the red states has the largest uh, number of people dependent on SNAP food mm-hmm. benefits, and so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw a lot of people seeming to, while they supported Trump in the wall, they were starting to realize that it really wasn't worth it to them personally. They felt a little betrayed by the fact that Trump would do something that would also hurt their families. And I really felt that the the shutdown couldn't go on to the point where the food stamps started flowing because you're going to have a lot of angry, poor Trump supporters out there who turn their back on you forever for that. Because I think that whatever support you have for a racist policy is going to end when you can't feed your children and have to go stand on a bread line. Um, so it was interesting to see how the shutdown, when the effects became real, how people realized how important government is. But also, if you look at Trump today, he's under fire from Ann Coulter, from Fox News, from all kinds of conservative pundits. He lost. Mm-hmm. He lost big league. He's a wimp. He's a wimp. He's a loser. Caved. That was the number one word that boosted up in the Google searches. Trump caved. And if there's one thing a strict father cannot be, it's a... Someone who caves. Someone who gives in. Somebody who gives gives away his authority. He has to maintain authority under all accounts. And, and this is was really important in the shutdown of the government where people didn't quite realize where government was. Government is in air traffic controllers. Gee, air tra- no air traffic controllers? What? You know, air traffic controllers aren't being paid? Should I get on an airline? Well, that morning, LaGuardia was about to shut down, and he ended it immediately. Yeah. Can you imagine the, the impact that would have had? Sure. I mean, he was in way over his head. And I think it's worth to note that not only was the strict father beaten at his own game, forced to cave and be a wimp, but he was beaten by a woman. How is the hierarchy going to react to that, George? Exactly. You can't be beaten by a woman, especially a progressive woman. I think the Republicans better get used to that. (laughs) That's all for this week. See you next time.